0: But tonight we're going to be in Revelations chapter 12 for uh, a chapter that has a whole lot more to do with Christmas than you may would suspect. So for however many years we have been alive, uh, just think about this. We have been celebrating Christmas. You have celebrated Christmas or you've heard about Christmas, you've known about Christmas for as long as you've been alive, for as long as you've been conscious. There's not many things that I can stand up here as a 33 year old and speak to a congregation full of people that could be twice my age, three times my age even. There's not many things that I can say that I have known all of my life, that you have known all of your life. There's things that are, are fairly new. There's things that might be 50, 60, 70 years old, but Christmas is a little older than that. Every one of us, as, as long as we've been alive, Christmas has been celebrated. That's a pretty big 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 deal to think about. And as much, it's as much as a constant, as a, as a guarantee, as the seven days a week are to repeat. So just like there's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 52 times a year, Christmas is as guaranteed to come December 25th every single year. And, and maybe you didn't know this, since about 336 A.D., so 336 after the, 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 after the birth of Christ, to 2023, Christmas has been recognized and celebrated on an international level, as in across continents, across countries. So almost 2,000 years, so, so just a little bit, you know, 1,990 years, Christmas has been celebrated and recognized on an international level from around 330 AD to the year 2023 AD. So think about that. There's no other holiday that you can say the same about that across all the prevailing kingdoms of the world, no other holiday has been celebrated continuously for as long with no interruptions. Now, of course, within the church, Christmas has been celebrated. The birth of Christ has been celebrated for even longer. Since around 30 AD, when Jesus began his ministry, and a few years after that, as people began figuring out who he was and what his, what his life meant and what his birth meant, since around 30 AD, people have been celebrating the birth of Christ as a major event in history. It was on a small scale at first, but still, since 30 AD, people have been celebrating Christmas. So it, it may have taken three hundred years to get uh, on on a bigger scale, but there are there there were plenty of people celebrating it before it became an an actual holiday that was acknowledged by a, a major kingdom or a major country. So obviously, the commercialization of Christmas to the version that we know it today, it didn't happen until many, 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 many years later, um, around the 1800s, 19th century, Christmas became you know what it is today and began to be presented the way it is today with the, the wreaths and the, the, the pageantry and the carols. Um, but so, so, so for almost 300 years now, we've been doing it the way we, we do it. Um, and, and again, it changes every so many years, but it has looked the same for, for a couple hundred years now. But since 30 AD, the heart of the Christmas story and the heart of the Christmas season has been the same thing. So just think about that for just a minute. Christmas has been celebrated for nearly 2,000 years in some way, shape, or form. And it's been an international holiday since the Roman Empire declared it one around 1,700 years ago. There's nothing else that even compares to that in this world. Here's why I think this should encourage us tonight, because we live in a world where we love to worry about stuff going in the wrong direction. Now, many of you have lived in, have lived to see things going the wrong direction, and I'm not saying that you, your worries haven't been legitimate, and I'm not saying that there aren't things to be concerned about. But we live in a world where the church likes, it doesn't like to, but it's very common that the church gets a little bit scared. It's very common that we get a little bit nervous that, oh no, are we being pushed to the margins? Are we being shoved to the side? Are we losing our influence? Are we losing our power if there ever was power in a worldly way, but we think we need to have it. We get very nervous when it seems like the church is losing influence. And by all means, I'd love to have a lot of influence, a lot more influence than we have today. Many of you have lived in a world where it, where the church had more influence than it does now. But we get a little nervous when the world and culture and and, and all the societies begin to push God to the corner, right? And, And that's normal, that's natural, but we get nervous, don't we? We are always worried that the church is on the brink of being silenced and fading away. Something always makes us think this is a new concern or that the threats are new, that the threats in today's world are unlike anything that's ever come against the church before. But, but I want you to know this, and, and again, I'm not trying to make light of what you might worry about. I'm just trying to encourage you that this isn't new, that this has been something the church has worried about for a long time, particularly concerning Christmas. So in 1843, you'll know that you'll recognize this 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 name and in, in this book. In 1843, Charles Dickens published the christmas carol or a christmas carol now you probably don't maybe you didn't know this but at the time england was really in an uh, was really in an uncomfortable place in terms of the church's prominence and this just the morale around the church and they were a little concerned that the christmas traditions were becoming a little bit uh, a little bit taken for granted and that uh, they were worried that christmas was soon going to be a thing of the past So again, 1843, the church and Christians in England were worried that Christmas might just, people might not celebrate it before too long. There were some things in society, there was a lot of intellectual um, opposition, there was a lot of new theories and new new societal ideas that were kind of making Christians look like they were just really out, out of touch and the church seemed really out of place. So again, in 1843, the church and Christians were worried that Christmas might be forgotten before too long. So Charles Dickens wrote a story about Ebenezer Scrooge, how he was too busy and too rich and otherwise invested to be involved in Christmas. He had too much else going on, and that was really a surrogate for for the average person in that world in that time. It was a commentary on people who were just getting too busy and too otherwise invested for Christmas. So Scrooge, as the story goes, eventually succumbs to a force that was too powerful to resist. He was a greedy man. He was a selfish man. He was an indifferent man. He was a sinful man. But Christmas just had too big of an impact for even his hard heart to go untouched. So Dickens wrote that book, and it's a tremendous story, and it really spearheaded a revival in England, and it popularized and cemented many of the Christmas traditions that we still celebrate today. Family gatherings, and seasonal food, and dancing, and games, and festivities. All of that really came out of that revival that took place in the 1840s. So Charles Dickens' book, we've all seen it portrayed you know, through a hundred different versions from plays to actual movies to cartoons, and it expresses a fear of losing Christmas, but it also really sends a message that Christmas will never be lost. There's something in the air that just cannot be shoved to the side. Now, there's another story that you're familiar with that kind of deals with this fear of losing Christmas, this fear of Christmas being taken away. And that's the more lighthearted story of how the Grinch stole Christmas by uh, Theodore Gazelle or or Dr. Seuss, as he's called. But the story of the Grinch trying to steal Christmas is really the story of how he couldn't steal Christmas, right? That he ransacked every home and he took the packages and the boxes and the bags and he took the feast and the pudding and the roast beast. But what happens at the end of the story? The Who's still gather in town, and they sing their song, Christmas comes anyway without those presents, without the parties, without the toys, without the food, because Christmas is unstoppable, right? The power and presence and spirit of Christmas came just like it always did. And what happens as the Grinch looks down from the mountain above? His heart begins to melt because he realizes Christmas could not be defeated. Christmas could not be taken away. The conclusion of both those classic stories is that Christmas is too big to fail. Christmas is beyond the enemy's reach to overcome. Christmas, more importantly, the message cannot be toned down and it will not be forgotten. The power and promise of Christmas is too great, too prevalent, too too, too persuasive to ever lose its momentum. Now, call me naive, and I'm sure some people have and will. Call me naive, but maybe it's just that Christmas makes me extra idealistic and I'm already pretty idealistic. But but y'all know me by now. I don't give in. I don't give a lot of room for the fear-mongering that goes on in the world today because there's a lot of people that love to make us always on the edge and always afraid and always thinking we need somebody to come in and save the day when the Savior has already come and he has not lost and he will never lose. So beyond Christmas, regarding Christianity, regarding the church, the ability for God's people to endure anything that we face, I'm not saying there isn't opposition. There is opposition. There is an enemy. I'm not doubting that things are not difficult and that sometimes taking a stance can cost us and it might be hard to fight the battles we have to fight. Don't get me wrong. The devil would love to see Christmas go away. He would love to see the church lose. He would love to see Christianity to die. But guess what? Try as he might, It will never happen. Never. Ever. You know why I'm so confident? Because the battle has already been fought and already been won. Satan tried to cancel Christmas before it ever happened, and he was unsuccessful. So when you step back and you consider what Christmas meant to to the reign of darkness, how it brought an end to the devil's rule over the world, and the, the, the grip he had on the world, it should come as no surprise why so much effort was put forth by the devil to stop Christmas from ever happening. Because he knew once Christmas came, it would be unstoppable. So if you know the story... You'll recall that he was trying to stop Christmas from happening. He was trying to marginalize th- th- as much as he could when it did happen. And we'll look at some of those stories in a little bit. But I want to begin tonight by looking at Revelations 12, which again might not be a text that you turn to frequently this time of year, but we're going to find out. It's actually one of those few non-gospel scriptures that gives us a broad overview of the Christmas story. It's much more a summary from the top down of what God has been doing throughout the whole redemption story and how the devil has been trying to oppose God's work again and again and again, but it gives us confidence that God has won and that we as his people can trust him no matter how hot the enemy's fire may get. So Revelation 12 uh this is a, a kind of a break in the Revelation story as it's telling us prophetically things that have happened, things that will happen. Revelation 12 kind of zooms out and says, "Oh, let me just kind of talk to you about what's been going on since the very beginning of time and how God's people can have confidence because of what God has been doing since the beginning." A great sign appeared in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads, ten hordes, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God with his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed, should feed her one thousand two hundred and sixty. Days. And there's a whole lot of symbolism in here, but I want to kind of give you, give you the, the, the simple breakdown of this. Again, Revelations 12 is not one that you'll hear read at a candlelight service in a couple of weeks, but maybe it should be. It tells the story of a woman who is giving birth to a baby who is destined to be king and a dragon doing everything he could to stop him from ascending to his throne. Now what does that story seem to be saying? I think it's clearly an allegory of the redemption story that God has worked through Israel because in the Garden of Eden, there wasn't a dragon there, but there was a serpent there, right? And if you look down uh, if you look down in verse number nine, it refers to the dragon as the serpent of old. so The Bible begins with a serpent deceiving the people of God, and Revelation 12 tells us that from the very beginning, there has been a dragon trying to stop the redemption story that God has been trying to do through this woman. Now, this woman uh, is a picture of the nation of Israel. Israel is often personified as a woman. Uh, she's called uh, the, the the bride of God in the Old Testament. Uh, I think verse number one gives us a clear sign that this is a picture of Israel. Uh, it says her garland had 12 stars, so a wreath, right? Uh, she had a wreath around her neck, and the 12 stars of that wreath are a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. So I think this is a picture of the nation of Israel. God chose Israel to bring a Savior into the world. The Savior was going to come through the nation. So as if a woman was giving birth to a child, Israel would give birth to the Savior. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about the unsuccessful attempts that Satan levied against Israel to prevent the Savior from ever being born. First, you'll remember that he came up against the original family of Israel, and what did he do with the nation of Israel? Again, if you think back to that story uh, when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, though, Jacob calls that family, or the devil calls the family to turn on itself. Turn on itself. So what happens in the story of Israel, the very first generation of the nation of Israel? Jacob's sons all begin to fight each other because one of them is favored over the other. J- Joseph is the favorite. So Judah, the leader of the group, gets all his brothers together and they come up with a plan. We're going to sell our little brother or we're going to try to kill our little brother. And when they did, decided not to kill him, they sold him into slavery and sent him to Egypt. And that was the first strike against Israel, and, and, and the, the devil's thinking, because he knows what's going on, there's about to be a famine that's going to take over the whole world. And if he can get Israel to be divided, and he can take and kind of begin to wound the people of Israel, they wouldn't make it through this famine. Well, the story goes that Joseph, their little brother, is sold into slavery. But y'all know how the, what happens next. Joseph ends up a, a servant of Potiphar. Now, if you read that story, you'll know that the Bible says that Joseph did not panic, and Joseph never batted a and and Joseph continued to trust in God. And what is repeated throughout that story? That God was with Joseph. And isn't that the theme of the Christmas story? God with us. So that's pretty important to make that, that that connection. Joseph had God's presence and Joseph never doubted God. So what happens as Joseph goes to prison, spends 13 years forgotten by God, forgotten by his family, forgotten by everybody. Next thing you know it though, he's the prime minister of Egypt because of miraculous circumstances. He's brought out of the prison to be a dream interpreter of Pharaoh. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And then what happens? A famine sweeps over the earth and Joseph had the foresight and Joseph had the vision to to tell Pharaoh, hey, we've got to get ready for this famine. We are rich, we are resourceful, we can stockpile all that we need for seven years so when the famine comes, we're not just going to have enough for us, we'll be able to sell to the rest of the world and we'll make money when everyone else is losing money. So Joseph leads the nation of Egypt into that success, and into that prosperity. And who comes to Egypt looking for grain but the sons of Israel. And of course, Joseph rubs his hands together thinking, hey, I can pay them back. But God is with Joseph and Joseph does not choose to pay them back, but he chooses to forgive them. And he says to his brothers, I am Joseph, you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And what happens in that story? Joseph says to his brothers, go and get our father, bring him here. We are gonna put y'all up in the best land that Egypt has. And if you go read that story, they are put in the land of Goshen, which is a province of Egypt that was the most prosperous and the most, most plentiful land in the air, in, 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 place in the land. And it says that Israel prospered and they multiplied and the nation was saved. So what the devil try to do? He tried to stop Israel before they ever got started. But guess what happens? His attempt to destroy the family only set the family up for salvation. But y'all know that things don't stay happy and go lucky. That Israel is a guest of honor in Egypt, but a few years go by and a new pharaoh comes to power and he begins to look at all the administration and look through all the documents and says, well, hey, why, why are we giving the Jews the best land? And why are we making them guests of honor? Well, they are more than us. They're stronger than us. They're smarter than us. They're be- why are we just letting them have free, run over, uh, you know, free reign over our land? And, and they begin to make a plot against the Jews to not just take them down a notch, but to ultimately destroy them. So before you know it, the Jews are taken in as slaves to the Egyptians. And then Pharaoh comes up with a nefarious plot to help thin the nation down. He says to his uh, midwives that are sent into the camps, every baby boy that's born, kill it immediately. And if there's one way to destroy a nation, uh, to cut the population down, uh, it would be that. So Satan, again, came up against the people of Israel because he knew a savior was gonna be born to the people of Israel one day. And the best way to stop a savior from being born is to kill every boy that is born in case one of them happens to be the savior. We all know what happens. Not the savior, but a deliverer, is born and sent down the Nile in a basket because God protected him and spared him. Moses, Moses rises up as the deliverer brings the children of Israel out of Egypt and then leads them into the promised land. Again, saved from the fire, but there's more fires coming. As the nation gets established in the promised land, uh, another famine sweeps over the world and the people of Israel are dying. Disease has taken left and right. And it didn't look good for the future of Israel, but God had a plan. Again, the devil's rubbing his hands together thinking, hey, it didn't work with Joseph. It didn't work with with Pharaoh, but maybe it'll work with this time. But God had a plan. A young Moabite woman is married to a son of Judah, the tribe that was kind of the leaders of the nation. Boaz and Ruth are the family that God really begins to get the ball rolling for the redemption story because Boaz and Ruth, in the midst of a famine, in the midst of uncertainty, God gives them a son named Obed, gives them a son, a grandson named Jesse, and a great-grandson named David. And King David would eventually unite the nation and would bring Israel to prosperity and it's to King David that God makes the promise, I am gonna send a son through your house and he is going to save not just Israel, he is going to save the world. But the devil didn't stop, did he? He destroyed Israel, broke it in half, tore it in half, brought foreign gods to Israel, brought paganism to Israel, brought Israel into slavery once again, brought them into captivity. The story goes that the Jews are taken into captivity by Babylon, and eventually, an empire called Persia takes over Babylon and takes over the Jews, takes the Jews in as their own slaves. Persia had a king named Ahasuerus who had a right-hand man named Haman. Haman was deeply racist against the Jews. He had heard the Jews were always a thorn in the side of the empires of the world. They were a problem for Egypt. They were a problem for Babylon. they will be a problem for Persia if they are not taken care of. So Haman goes to King Ahasuerus one day and says, we have got to eradicate the Jews if we want to survive as an empire. And Ahasuerus says, fine, get rid of them. So Haman begins a systemic plot to hunt down every single Jew and kill them one by one little did Haman know and little did King Ahasuerus know that his bride-to-be a woman named Esther was a Jew the the, land, the king the king's court had been searching for him a bride and they had a, a beauty pageant And they were looking for the smartest, brightest, most beautiful woman in the land. And a girl named Esther was chosen, and she married King Ahasuerus. And when she found out that Haman was about to enact a plot to kill the Jews, she stood up to her husband and said, I know this might cost me my life, but I am a Jew, and you are the one that can save my people because God's got a plan for the world, and God's going to save the world. But if if you take out the Jews, there will be no salvation salvation for any of us. So God uses Esther to save the people of Israel. Again, notice how many times Satan tried to destroy the Jews, tried to stop a savior from being born. But indeed, as many times as the dragon tried to kill the child, he could not lay a finger on him. He could not destroy Israel. So again, the woman in the story, the woman in the allegory is a picture of Israel, but eventually she's a picture of Mary because Mary really embodies the nation of Israel because as Israel was to give birth to a savior, Mary literally gave birth to the savior, to Jesus. Now y'all know the story, Matthew's gospel, we'll look at this in more detail next time. Matthew's gospel tells us that King Herod, Caught wind of a savior that had been born, a king that had been born in his nation, and he got a little bit insecure because he did not like the idea of he of him being replaced one day. And he had asked the asked the, the the scribes and the in the the religious leaders, "Hey, what's the Old Testament say about?" the Savior, and they say to him it's about, to, he's, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born in this nature. And be- King Herod hears about these wise men that came from far off to visit a newborn king. And Herod is so afraid that he pulls a playbook Of the devils from hundreds of years ago, just like Pharaoh tried to kill all the boys to keep a savior from being born in Egypt, Herod orders that every boy that's born up to two years old that had been born, every boy needed to be killed. So the woman in this allegory runs into the wilderness. She takes her child with her. They go to Egypt and they flee for several years while this plot is being rolled out. But again, Satan could not stop Christmas from coming. And after it came, he could not stop the ball that God had already got rolling. And you could go on. What happens every... What, what do we talk about every single Easter? Pilate and Herod of that generation tried to stop Jesus and their efforts to kill Jesus only elevated him and only set the stage for his redeeming work. So think about this. Every attempt of the devil, of the dragon, to erase Jesus from history inadvertently... Set the stage for us to remember so well how God intervened time and time again. Now, does Satan continue to try to stop the work that God is doing? Does he still try to prevent us from getting a glimpse of what God is doing? Absolutely. But just like the story says, God protected the woman, God protected the child. That doesn't keep there from being a war. Verse number seven says, a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. So when people say, is there a war on Christmas? I I don't pay attention to that in, in the commercial side of things. But is there a war on Christianity? Is there a war against the church? Absolutely there's a war. There's been a war since the very beginning. The devil has done everything he can to stop God's redeeming work. But what does verse eight say? But they did not prevail So when somebody comes to you and says I don't know what's going to, I don't know what we're going to do. How how are we going to make it through this one? You know what you can say to them? Revelation 12 verse 8. They did not and they will not prevail. You know what the proof is? Every single year Christmas comes And it's the most dominant, powerful season of them all. Since the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world, he is cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they did not love their own lives to death Therefore rejoice all heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. Here's the here's the thing. The devil knows his time is short. He works diligently to discourage, but we know we have courage and we can endure patiently. We have nothing to be afraid of. If we believe in Christmas, if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in the unfailing, unstoppable God, Christmas will never fade away. Our faith will never fade away. Christmas expresses the persistence and embodies the preeminence of God. When we consider the backstory and how all this led through the nation of Israel redeeming the world, and yet the nation of Israel so oppressed, so over, uh, over, uh, downtrodden, and so uh, surrounded, yet God continually held them together, and even though they fell short, and even though they struggled, and even though they didn't always believe, God never wavered, and God's promises never failed. And no matter how many minions of the devil that were enlisted to combat God and combat Christmas from coming and all that it stands for and combat the church that we are a part of today, guess what? He has not prevailed. We may go away. I may go away. America may go away. But the church will not be stopped. It will not be erased. It will not be canceled. You know, being a pastor, people send me all kinds of stuff and they say, Justin, have you you seen this? Have you watched that? Have you read this? And, you know, if we don't do this or if this doesn't happen, if this election goes, people, you know, and I understand, I, I get it, I get it. But you know, the church is at risk, the Christianity is at risk. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? And people will send me articles and videos and they'll ask me if I watch this, and I usually don't watch it, not to be mean, but because I, I, don't, I don't really need to worry about that. I don't, I don't need to, to know what's the great risk, what the great uh, 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 risk against us is because hey, I know there's always been one. There's been a war for thousands of years, but Revelation 12 8 says they did not prevail. And Revelation 12.8 tells me that they will not prevail. You know, the devil would love you to be overcome with fear and dread and pessimism and anxiety and dismay to make you lose your hope and lose your faith and lose your love and lose your peace and lose your joy. He would love to drain the Christmas spirit out of every one of our hearts because if we get dependent on any man-made institution, we will be Overcome. Christmas Christianity, the church, will only be marginalized if we believe the lies of our culture and the lies of the devil. Are there those who want to put a stop to the church and put a stop to Christianity? Yes, but it will never work. The promise of Christmas has the power to stay in our minds and entrench our hearts in peace because Christmas is about God drawing near to a world that had fallen away. Christmas sends the ultimate message of God's unconditional love. He took the first step toward us. He entered into creation. Whether we would ever respond or not, the prevailing message of Christianity for, the last 2000, for its 2,000-year run has been God has drew near to those that were fallen away and that Jesus has come and opened a door for all of us to know God. That is our hope and that is our faith and there's nothing that can undo what Christmas started. The devil tried to stop it from coming and he failed. He did not prevail so I want to close on this thought. If God has so intricately governed the history of the world, and if God so, so meticulously guided the redemption story from beginning to end, how much more should you trust him with your everyday life? If God had guided his people through every attack from the devil and brought Christmas to the world, brought Jesus to the world, brought the resurrection to the world, if God so intricately and meticulously guided and governed the church through all that it's been through, how much more should you trust him with every single thing that comes against you? Will the battle be hard? Will the battle be long? Will the weight be heavy? Yes, yes, yes. But is our victory certain? Absolutely. What does Revelation 12, 11 says again? They overcame him, past tense, overcame by the blood of the lamb, by the word, as in God's word, so we can rejoice. As Christmas comes year after year, it should remind us that God is totally in control. Nothing can stop his goodness. Nothing can come against his plans for our life. Our future is safe in his hands. Christmas should remind us more than ever, God is with us, God is for us, and no work or word of his will ever, ever, ever fail. If we have this peace and this hope, then we have everything we could ever need. Listen, I can't drop into your mind whenever you Or panic over something that's a big deal to you, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. I can't drop into your mind and say, hey, you don't need to worry about this. I I know that. But you know what? God can plant this seed in your hearts and your minds tonight, and He can remind you, do you know what I've done throughout history? Do you know how many things came up against me and how many things could have prevented me from sending Jesus into this world? Do you know how many things tried to stop me from sending Christmas and from sending hope and sending salvation? Everything you could ever imagine. And I did not lose any battle that I had to fight. So Christmas is indeed the most wonderful and merry time of the year. It gives us joy and it gives us hope and it gives us peace that should sustain us through any battle we face. Christmas should remind you that God's plans never fail and that God is a good God. He has, a sal- he has salvation for you and you can trust him always. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise of Christmas. Thank you for the reminder that we have in Christmas that you never fail. No word of yours ever fails. The devil did not prevail, and he will not prevail. And as your people face many battles, many hard frustrating seasons. There's nothing that you cannot bring us through. Christmas is the proof of that because you brought salvation into the world. The devil couldn't stop it. And since Christmas has come, nothing, nothing can stop the work that you have started. The devil lost. Victory is here. And that's the end of the story. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the greatest gift we could ever, ever have asked for. Salvation, peace, joy, hope. Fill our hearts this Christmas once again. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.